So uh, I don't know if it's an Eastern thing in general or just like Indonesian thing in particular, but I feel like our culture is very aware and generally quite fearful of you know, supernatural forces. Right? A lot of people in the city are actually concerned about appeasing or not offending these spooky spiritual forces. Okay, like, let me tell you a story. A couple of months ago, I was driving in Jakarta and I was rushing through the ridiculously tight South Jakarta alley. And suddenly, I got to a stoplight and a Gojek guy came knocking on my window, right? So I rolled down my window and you know, tried to find out what he wants. And apparently, I ran over some poor cat in my rush. Tragic, I know. So the Gojek guy pleaded that I backtrack to find this cat so I can bury it because apparently cats are related to some supernatural force and if I didn't bury it, I'd be cursed, right? Like some unfortunate accident happened to me, right? Now guys, backing, track backing through traffic, finding and burying this cat somewhere was not gonna happen, right? I had somewhere to be and you know what, he got time for that. But the sweet Gojek guy looked genuinely concerned, right? As if he was trying to save my life, but little did he know I was a Christian. And Jesus already took all the curse for me on the cross. And I was about to tell him this and preach to him the gospel, but the light turned green and I had to go. And I missed opportunity. Anyway, fast forward a week, I was in Bali to take some pre wedding photos with my then fiance, and I was driving a scooter. Then we got into an accident, right? I drove the scooter straight into the sawa, right? Like straight to the paddy fields. I was fine. She unfortunately had a few scrapes on her arms and legs. And deep down, I knew that this accident was because of my shameful driving skills. But as rational and reformed as I am, I would be lying if there wasn't a moment where I thought it was the cat. <laughs> I'm cursed. I killed the devil's cat, and now I'm cursed. And I tell you the story, right, hopefully to illustrate how much confusion and distress are cultural narratives about the mystical and spiritual can cause us. So I feel it's important for us to ground what our understanding of the mystical forces are in the biblical narrative so that we know what they're actually trying to do to us. Because at the same time, it would also be foolish to completely mystify the Bible and act as if these forces doesn't affect us at all. Because the New Testament actually has a lot to say about this. In fact, if we uh, look at Paul, right, we are described as having a hostile relationship with the spiritual forces. In fact, Paul describes our relationship with them as being at war. If you read Ephesians 6, clearly tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of the air. So we've got to put our armor on. In other words, in the Bible, it's clear that the enemy is out there He's dangerous, and we've got to be ready to fight. Now, the great Chinese tactician and general, Sun Tzu, I think that's how it's pronounced, I don't know, right? Famously said in his book, The Art of War, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Now, I doubt San Tzu was a Christian, but I don't think it's heretical to say that this is actually some pretty good advice for this war against the spiritual forces that we are up against. And I feel like no passage in the Bible teaches 
us more clearly about the enemy and its actual threat to us than the passage we are studying today. We will be studying the act of first aggression, the event that started this war that we are in, right? Think Franz Ferdinand getting shot, Hitler marching into Poland, or 9-11, but on a cosmic level. That's what our passage is today, probably the most famous story ever. So let's read it to see what we can learn from it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. This is the Word of God. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Brothers and sisters, so far as we've studied the first book of the Bible and reflected upon the ideal world God created, what we just read is what ruined it all. And the biblical story from here on out is just this painful descent as we watch things get worse and worse in God's once good creation. So what we read, friends, is not just some history lesson, but an insight to how the enemy was able to conspire the downfall of even innocent Images of God who had no inclination or reason to sin. And from this, we can actually learn to anticipate and encounter encounter the enemy's attacks at all times because we are ultimately dealing with the same old snake who's trying to use the same old tricks to get us making the same mistakes, right? So, which is basically our three points that we'll be covering today. Point one, the enemy's profile Point two, the enemy's schemes. Point three, the enemy's objectives. Friends, the goal this morning is not fear-mongering, but think of this sermon as entering the war room with the Holy Spirit, right? So He can guide us to, to see how we can stop the enemy exploiting our weaknesses, okay? Let's get into it. Point one, enemy's profile. So the passage that we are studying today is one that might get a lot of skeptics hung up, right? They would read about a talking snake and swiftly conclude that this is some fairy tale and dismiss the entire story as being trustworthy, right? And trust me, this was as weird-sounding to its original readers thousands of years ago as it is to us, right? Talking animals is not common in the Bible. It only happened one other time. And we'll discuss why the antagonist in the story is actually very intentionally described this way. But let's just go first with the basis, with the assumption that this is not some fable. The characters and the stories are real. And there was some kind of encounter between the first humans and the evil that has manifested itself here as a serpent. But at the same time, we know that, as we mentioned in previous sermons, that we're not reading a scientific report here. 
Because clearly, more is going on than meets the eye. This is no ordinary snake. Aside from the fact that it talks, it's described as being more crafty than all the other beasts of the field. And the ESV says, And in the conversation with the woman, it clearly presents itself as having some sort of insider information about God's decision. So most commentators agree that this snake is some sort of spiritual being that's very intentionally here being described as a beast whose main agenda is to manipulate humans into rebellion against our Creator. Now, one question, right, that perplexed me growing up was, how could it be that such a creature exists in God's world? Like, did God create such a dangerous thing? Or better yet, like, God knew the snake was there, doesn't he? He's God. Why didn't he just kill it and save us all the trouble? This didn't make sense to me. How in God's sanctuary there are these stray spiritual beings running around messing with his people. And this is a mystery because the Bible never tells us how exactly the snake got there. But after a deep study of this text, I found somewhat a satisfactory answer in the Hebrew word arum, right? That's translated here in the ESV as crafty or shrewd in other translations. Because the Hebrew text actually really highlights this word in this narrative through this wordplay, which I can't get into now. But what I do want to point out, that if we do word search of all the other time this word occurs in the Bible, it is never used in a negative sense. Most of, this, uh, most of the time we encounter this word arum as prudent in the book of Proverbs. And it's actually a pretty good trait. Like in Proverbs 12, it says, Fools show annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook the insult. Or in Proverbs 14, the naive person believes everything, but the prudent, the arum, watches their steps. So being prudent is like this ability to consider things and make calculated decisions to our own advantage. It's a pretty beneficial trait, right? So what I think this narrative is teaching us by using particularly this word is that God did not create an evil creature. God is totally free from the responsibility of creating evil. What God made was a creature that's been given the gift of exceptional prudence, yet this creature took the gift that God has given him that has the potential to create so much good and use his privileged position of authority, misused it by rebelling and seducing the humans to misusing their authority in the same way. And at least for me, that really begs the question, right? Why would the snake do such a thing? What motivated him? Friends, his motives are as much of uh, mystery as his origins. And I think we're meant to see this enemy as dangerous because he is so mysterious and crafty and disguised. However, if we look at this story through the lens of recurring patterns that will become increasingly prominent in the biblical narrative, we can actually make some interesting observations. And especially relevant here is a theme of how God's MO is that He exalts the lowly latecomers, secondborn, right? Above the firstborn, above those who in that culture are entitled to privilege and priority, right? We see this in the very next story with Cain and Abel. 
Then more times in the book of Genesis with Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brothers. Happens everywhere in the Bible. Showing us clearly that God, how God works is to give power and honor to those whom He chooses and not to those to whom the culture thinks it is entitled. How God works radically subverts our cultural expectations about who is privileged with power. Unsurprisingly then, when these subversions do happen in the biblical story, envy soon follows. Now think back to Genesis 1. Who was the one created last and elevated above all the beasts of the field and given the authority to rule as images of God over the land, skies, and seas? The human. In our text, we see a creature that was created chronologically prior try to undermine this order and seize this power by force. That's why many very old interpretations of Genesis 3 across both Jewish and Christian traditions believe that what drove the serpent to this evil was in fact envy. Resentment towards God for elevating the human and coveting the status that God gave us, leading to a desire to destroy the ones he is envious of. We're definitely going to see this again in, in the Bible, right? Nonetheless, right, what's clear is that the snake is a creature that despises the fact that God's world, in God's world, power is something that is received and not seized. Therefore, the snake uses their God-given gift of prudence to seize power for themselves, getting humans to act like him, seizing the right that only God has on their own terms. But whatever the motivation of the snake may be, what the text really makes clear is that the snake is something that we are supposed to be able to handle. I find it very interesting that in verse 1, right, the snake here is still ultimately described as a beast of the field. Although the snake is clearly no ordinary animal, right, it is at the same time described in very ordinary terms, very different from the seven-headed fiery dragon that you can find on the other side of the Bible in Revelation 13. But this one is just a regular old snake that casually happened to talk. And I think why it's described this way is to allude to the fact that we, as images of God, have authority over the snake. Remember Genesis 1, 28, we were given dominion over the beasts of the earth. Add that to the fact that the snakes in the Old Testament is considered to be an unclean beast. And as the sermon a couple of weeks ago describes, the Garden of Eden is an image of God's holy temple, the place where God lives. And Adam, as we read in our uh, statement of faith, is given the role of priest there. He was supposed to work and keep the sanctity of the temple. So if Adam did his job, he would have exercised his authority over the animals and cleansed God's space from this filthy beast. But as we read the story, he really did botch it out, didn't he? And he was idly standing by as a serpent successfully deceived his wife and joined afterwards in their error. And the enemy was able to do that by tricking him, tricking her 
to condemn, to believe in his lies instead of the promises of God. Just point two, the enemy's schemes. Now, let's look at the heart of text, right? The conversation between the serpent and the woman that got us into this mess that we're in, right? Verses um, one to four. And we can clearly see that the snake employs two strategies that prove to be effective against the humans, right? The first thing that the serpent does in verse one is jab at them with an obvious lie. He said, did God really say, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If we've been reading Genesis, we literally just read in the last narrative that the first thing God said to them was, was to enjoy every tree in the garden. But what's the serpent trying to do here with this obvious lie? Well, it seems like what he wants to do is discredit God. He wants humans to second guess what God is really like so that we start suspecting that God is actually this killjoy tyrant who is preventing us from true enjoyment. Initially, though, you can read that Eve saw through the lie. He responded in verse 2 by correcting him, saying, no, God did say we could eat the trees here. But one crucial component, friends, of Eve's, of Eve's response, that she actually also didn't quite get what God said exactly right. Because Eve even added an extra rule that God never mentioned. Eve says that not, not only can we not eat of the forbidden fruit, God said we can't touch it. Now, there's wisdom there, I guess, right? If the thing is dangerous to eat, it's probably not the best idea to touch it. But in the end, that's not what God said. So it seemed like the serpent caught Eve off guard and she started to shift ever so slightly into seeing God as being more restrictive, legalistic, and harsh than He actually is. But if the serpent's jab was able to get Eve off balance and questioning God's generosity, the blow that really got humanity to fell was in verses 4 and 5. Using one very crafty move, the serpent attacked God's trustworthiness and managed to make us believe His main proposition, that we can do God's job on our own. And He tells this so insidiously, or He does so insidiously by telling them that God lied. And then feeding them, as Tazar mentioned, these half-truths that trick them into disobedience. Because the snake wasn't totally wrong when he said their eyes will be open and they will be like God, right? Their, their eyes did immediately open. And later in verse 22, God acknowledged that they, become, they did indeed become like God. And it's true that they didn't surely die. They didn't drop dead right after they ate the fruit. So he wasn't lying that they weren't going to immediately die or they were going to be enlightened. But what he never told them about was the result, the cost of this enlightenment. Because, friends, knowing good and evil is not simply about learning new information, right? Rather, as we've discussed extensively before, it's mainly concerned about taking the prerogative, taking the right to define what is good and evil on ourselves apart from God independently. Because you see, God never intended us to be in a state of ignorance. The Bible is clear everywhere 
The discernment about what is good and bad is a very good thing, a necessary thing, in fact, if humans are truly going to rule as images of God. But the question here is, from where do we draw our wisdom? Who or what will teach us discernment? Do we trust this know-it-all snake? Do we try to figure it out on our own as if we could ever have enough insight to do such a thing? We all know, don't we? If there is such a thing as absolute good and bad, who will be the one who had the right and capability to determine such a thing? The servant friends convinced that what God decides is right and wrong is oppressive and questionable convincing us that we'd be better off being free from Him and deciding these things on our own. And that's how the snake totally scammed humans because we actually have more already than what He was offering. Because think about it, friends. What else has happened in this story besides after God establishing order, He was working to share all His power, all his privilege, all his blessings and responsibility, all of himself with humans. We're created in his image. We carry the divine breath. We had divine privileges, like being able to name parts of creation, like God alone had the right to do. We were offered the fruit of life so that we can experience the eternal life of God. And God even gave Adam a wife so he can get an experience of the divine life, right? Being this diverse unity of love like He is, as Tez preached on last week. Like, what more do you want? So the narrative is not God holding us back, but it's more like God saying, have everything. Just please trust me, there's one thing that can ruin it all. Because the one thing, the one way that we weren't supposed to be like God was actually for our own good. Because insisting on being like God in this way too actually jeopardizes the ways in which God has already made us to be like Him. And the deviousness of the snake tactics is that it makes us take for granted the innumerable blessings God has already given us and forget the place of exceeding honor that we are already in instead convincing us that God is holding out on us. You see, friends, what the serpent tries to do is to get us questioning God's character. He wants us to see God as a tyrant. He wants His commands to feel like chains, making us lose sight of the goodness, grace, wisdom, the love behind God's instructions. Then convincing us that He is hindering us and not actually helping us to lay hold of that which is truly life. So the enemy's voice, friends, is when you hear that still small voice in your heart that's telling you that you would be happier in sin. You were happier before God. It's the enemy's lies that are telling us, wouldn't it be great if I got to sleep with that person that I'm not married to, though God says I shouldn't? that I would be so happy if I kept all this money and spent it on myself, though God did teach me that I was blessed to be a blessing, that I would feel so much better 
if I could just have my revenge on this person for hurting me. Though justice do, does belong to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the enemy's voice is telling us that we cannot trust God. and We will never really be satisfied if we obey Him. And if we listen to the enemy, even if God Himself is surrounding us with the blessings of Eden, we can still feel like we are in a prison. Fortunately, for the entire human race, Adam and Eve did listen to the serpent. They failed to obey God and decided to do things their own way, which had disastrous consequences that we have to live with even today. Point three, the enemy's objectives. Now, let's look at what's happened after the humans were exposed to the serpent's lies, right? It sets off this chain of events that causes discord and the beautiful harmony that God originally orchestrated His world to have. And we could notice that this happened in three phases in our text, okay? The first phase happened right after the serpent finished making his case. We see the woman believe him and commit the act of rebellion that sent us on this downward spiral. But if we look at the text closely, the failure actually happened before she took the first bite. Because we can notice that before she ate it, it is written that the woman saw that the tree was good. Now this phrase is actually very deliberately crafted this way to mirror the activity of God in creation. Remember in Genesis 1, six times it says that God saw what He, was, he had made and declared it to be good. And we see here for the first time a human attempt to dethrone God and usurp His rightful place as the definer of good and evil. And because here she assumes the role of God and believes that she can trust in her eyes, she's already embraced the snake's alternate narrative that she would be fulfilled if just she could define what is good and evil on her own terms. So by coveting this wisdom, she actually became foolish. And that which could kill her became desirable. Hence, she was willing to exchange God's truth for a lie and ended up obeying a creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Reversing the very order of creation. So this, friends, is the first way we can realize we are playing into the enemy's hand when we start replacing God with created things, when we are deceived into believing the narrative that we can find our ultimate fulfillment, the blessings that will finally make our lives full apart from God, such that we give our ultimate attention, allegiance, and love to this created thing. The Bible calls this idolatry. And we can make pretty much anything an idol. Or money, for example, is a huge one in our culture. But what it is, what our idols are, are ultimately vehicles to what we really want. To be in a position of power, honored and respected by everybody. To be able to experience all the pleasures in life and be comfortable all the time. To be thought of well by others. To have the ability to control our circumstances and be safe. But the tragic irony is, Adam and Eve already had these things in abundance. Again, they were basically swimming in God's blessings. 
and had been given the ultimate affirmation by the Creator of heaven and earth. Yet the enemy's lies makes us forget our true identity and convinces us we lack something we actually had access to in abundance, so we seek it elsewhere. Because, you see, the enemy's prime objective is to get us to worshiping anything other than God. We don't need to be in a satanic cult for him to have our souls. We don't need to be demon-possessed to be doing what the devil wants us to do. Because what the enemy is, is the ultimate anarchist. He just wants us to rebel against God and wreck God's world. And he knows that the best way to do that is to put anything else in God's place and just watch as the goodness that God ordered the world in automatically come apart and descend into chaos, which is what the humans immediately experience in their relationship. The cruel twist of faith, when they seize the knowledge of good and evil that belong to God Himself, instead of being able to enjoy the good, what we actually get first is the knowledge of the bad, especially that we ourselves are bad. Because not only do we become an agent that has the capability of making judgments, but we are now also keenly aware that we are an object of the judgment of others. The second phase. Remember, the state of the world in before the serpent was in the picture. Chapter 2, verse 25, they were in a state of naked and unashamed. You see, before the fall, nakedness is an image of pure trust complete openness, vulnerability, and safety. And the first couple was truly unified with one another, not needing any self-protection or projection of the false self. They can be real. But after they seize the authority to decide what is good and evil for themselves, suddenly being naked means that they are exposed to the leering and judgmental eyes of a non-trusted person who might not think of us as we are, as good. So now, being open, showing who we really are, is always tainted with the threat, the possibility of humiliation and shame. Thus, they went from being naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. So that voice of insecurity, friends, that telling us that we're not enough as we are, that for some reason we should be ashamed of ourselves, that thought that nobody will ever love or accept us if they saw us for who we really are and if they knew what we're actually thinking. That is what the enemy wants our experience of each other to be. He wants us to live in this constant fear of judgment, especially the judgment of God, which leads to the third phase of our downfall, because being an object of judgment makes us so aware of our flaws and what we lack, what we try to do is to mask our insecurities, like Adam and Eve in verse 7. And we end up covering ourselves, or trying to at least, with something that is woefully insufficient. We saw that they became aware of their, uh, of their nakedness in verse 7 and sewed fig leaves together as if that would solve the problem. And that's what we all do too, right? We have this nagging suspicion of our inadequacy. We all feel like we have something proof to prove. 
We try to hide behind our achievements, behind our wealth, behind our good deeds, behind our religiousness, behind our ability to charm others. Whatever it is that we are capable of doing that we think gives us worth, fooling ourselves into thinking that we can do something, have something, or make something that can save ourselves from judgment. And so we turn to our idols, going full circle, hoping to find the affirmation and assurance God actually already offers freely. Yet eventually, friends, I'm pretty sure many of us has already realized this, that even after we think we covered ourselves, even after we have what we want, we'll find out that these things are so pitifully powerless to give us what we seek. We are still insecure. Our soul is still restless. We are still unsatisfied. We still want to hide. Idolatrous, insecure, insufficient. That is the state that these rebellious creatures uh, made us. These envious, rebellious creatures had used what God has given him for evil left us in. He got us questioning God's generosity and convinced us that God was holding out on us, and so we failed the test. Humanity's fall into sin is really more like a fail a failure to fulfill God's purpose, a failure to be God's trustworthy partners in His good creation. And I hope each one of us here today realize that we are under constant attack from this enemy. He didn't stop with Adam and Eve. Every day, He is working in the background so that we continue failing. That happens a lot, huh? So what we need, friends, is someone to do what Adam was supposed to do to end the servant's rebellion by confronting him and coming up victorious. We need someone who can fully trust in the Word of God and the face of the enemy's lies and temptation. We need someone who can decisively cover the shame of our failures and someone who can heal the damage we've done to the, ble- to the image of God and give us access once again to the blessings of Eden. And we know who that person is, don't we? The only one who was able to overcome every temptation, as we read in our call to worship. The only one who does only what his father tells him to do and says only what his father tells him to say. Perfect obedience. The one who is promised later in verse 15 as a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, the Lamb of God who willingly allowed himself to be struck by the snake and becomes the sacrifice that absorbs the penalty of sin and death for our failures on the cross so that his blood can cover our sin and shame, our Lord Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam, the divine image, the firstborn and heir of all creation. He is the only one who can confront the enemy for us. He is the one who can heal what the enemy has done to us. And only if we see his self-sacrificial love will we be able to see how wrong the enemy is, that our God is far from a tyrant and, and that we are in no way lacking. Only then will we be able to see that we are accepted and loved by God so much that we do not have to fear the judgment of, of others because God has declared us to be clean and righteous and worthy only because of Him, we know how the story will end, that we will be with Him again, having access to all the affirmation 
and fulfillment that God generously offers to us in abundance. So if any of you friends are still worried about the enemy, take off your fig leaves. Come to Jesus as you are. Listen to his narrative. And we have all that we need to overcome him. Amen? Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe. You are our rock, our fortress, our strong tower, who trains our fingers for battle and our hands for war. And we are at war, Lord, and we feel the enemy's attacks every day. Lord, we often fail, and we're often deceived into believing his lies, but your mercy and your voice is still with us. We are grateful for what you have given us through Jesus. We are grateful for the forgiveness that covers all our failures. And I pray, Father, as we walk in your world, that we may come into your likeness, that we may be like you, resisting the temptation that often seems so sensible, that often seems so desirable, and make the, these things of this earth, these things that the servant offers us, seem so pitifully dim compared to what you have offered us in abundance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.